Welcome to the SOAR podcast. Thank you for your support. If you want to continue to support this podcast, there are a few things you can do for me. Please like, subscribe, and share. And if you're listening to this on Apple Podcasts, I would love it if you would give me a five-star rating. And if you really feel motivated, go ahead and write a review. So welcome to SOAR, the Sisters Overcoming and Rising podcast. I'm Dr. Stephanie, your host, and I'm here to help women overcome limiting beliefs so that they can live their best lives. Sisters, come together now, come together now. It's time to help each other out, help each other out. It's time for transformation, time for healing. You've got the potential, you've got the power now. Sisters, overcoming and rising. Inspiration, interviews, and more. Our topic, the blacker the berry, dot, 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 is colorism still a thing? I would like to introduce my guest who's going to help us dive into this topic. So my special, special guest for this evening is Kimberly R. Moffitt. Uh, she has a PhD from Howard University. She is currently serving as the interim dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at UMBC. Before assuming this role, she was director of the Language, Literacy, and Cultural Doctoral Program and a professor of communication slash media studies, as well as affiliate professor of Africana Studies, a media critic whose research focuses on mediated representations of marginalized groups, as well as the politicized nature of black hair and the body. Dr. Moffitt has published several articles and book chapters, as well as five co-edited volumes, including Michelle Obama and the Flotus Effect, Platform, Presence, and Agency, Gladiators and Suits, Race, Gender, and the Politics of Representation and Scandal, Blackberries and Red Bones, Critical Articulations of Black Hair and Body Politics in Africana Communities, The Obama Effect, multidisciplinary renderings of the 2008 campaign and the 1980s, a transitional decade. Her latest work explores the black body and Disney programming and the impact of colorism on black teens. Dr. Moffitt often writes op-ed articles for the Baltimore Sun and is a frequent guest on local public radio, television, and internet broadcasting programs. She is a member of the Public Service Sorority, Delta Sigma Theta Sorority Incorporated, the secretary of the board of the National Association for Media Literacy Education, and the founding parent and former board member of Baltimore Collegiate School for Boys Charter School, a fourth through eighth college preparatory school. So as you can see, she is well equipped to lead us into this discussion. Welcome to SOAR. Thank you. I know that you're very busy, so I'm really appreciative of the time that you're spending with me. One of the reasons that you're so busy is that you have recently been appointed to the role of interim dean of the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences at UMBC. So congratulations. Thank you. And, Thank you. And let's start there. Can you tell us a little bit about your new position and your duties? Sure. In my role as interim dean, I am the chief academic administrator for 35 departments and programs and centers that fall underneath the College of Arts, Humanities, and Social Sciences, which means that I have about 300 faculty members that are working directly with our college and then well over 4,000 students who are part of our college, if not more. I think one of the things to highlight about our college is that it is the largest on campus, just in terms of number of departments, but also its representation of number of students that we have access to. So I am, you know, essentially responsible for the day-to-day activities of making sure the college runs and runs well, and in these precarious times of a pandemic, that becomes ever more challenging. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds like a lot of responsibility. (laughs) But excited for the opportunity. Um, I do think 
that when this opportunity presented itself, I recognized that I had a particular skill set that I felt like would be most useful during this time. I, as I often tell my chairs and directors that I see myself as a cheerleader in many ways, and I also see myself as their biggest advocate for what it is that we need to be successful at what we do. And I think in um, a period like now where folks feel like they are experiencing and are experiencing such despair, frustration, you know, fear, all of those things that can stop us in our tracks on a daily basis. I feel like I'm there as their cheerleader to encourage them, motivate them, inspire them, and let them know that we can do this if we do it together. Absolutely. I'm sure that they are very appreciative of the fact that you're there and you have that positive spirit to encourage them and advocate for them uh, because these are very precarious times mm-hmm. and we definitely need that. So the topic of colorism is the one that we're going to talk about today. And this is a topic that I had wanted to explore and I was trying to figure out who I could tap to help me explore this topic. And I was talking to a mutual friend of ours and she said, well, you know, Kimberly is an expert and has written books and articles, but she's way too busy. (laughs) And and I got really excited because I do believe that when you ask for what you want, most of the time you'll get it. So I knew you were busy, but I decided to ask anyway. And I'm so thankful that you said yes. Well, so easy to do when it's about my own research, that's for sure. So it doesn't feel so much like work because it's a part of what I do on a regular basis. Yeah. And as I was researching to talk to you, you have an impressive array and depth of scholarly production on this. So we won't get a chance to talk about all of it. But I wanted you to just give us an idea of how you got started with your work on colorism and how you ended up authoring a textbook about it. Mm -hmm. So I started, it's interesting because I had a mutual colleague of mine, Dr. Regina Speller-Sims, who approached me about working on this project together. Um, It was a edited volume that would give um, the opportunity for all of these scholars to come together who wanted to explore issues on black hair and body politics, which is the broader conversation that I tend to refer to that colorism and hair texture, all of those topics fall underneath. And when she approached me, I thought, oh, this could be interesting. At that point in time, I had two small children that may have been three and one years old and thought, This would be an interesting project to do with her, knowing that my children would have interesting experiences as black children in America, you know, dealing with many of what I refer to as the negative rites of passages that we have placed upon them around Mm -hmm. their hair texture and their skin color. That's an interesting term. I've never heard that before, but it makes total sense. Mm -hmm. So how long ago was that when you were approached to start this project? Oh, goodness. Um, So that would be soon after, a few years after I finished my PhD. So I would say it probably was 2003 is when I started working in this particular area of research. And even though I have extended my research to talk more broadly about media representations of African-Americans It still always stuck with me to be very much a part of any work that I do. And in fact, it's something that I return to and have been working on quite a bit most recently. Yeah. So you've been doing this for a long time, so Mm -hmm. you definitely have credibility. But I saw a recent article that you did called, Are We Still Talking About Colorism? And In this article, you were talking about the responses that happened when Beyonce released her song, Brown Skin Girl. Ah, yes, yes. Yeah, and you also mentioned how some rappers in their songs perpetuate the stereotype of light-skinned women being preferred in, in some of those songs. And I really love the title because it seems like, as Black people... We act like colorism is not an issue anymore. (laughs) Just exactly. Just this week, I saw an IG post of a young couple and they were joking that they're the light skinned couple of the year. Oh, my God. Right. And it seemed like there was this underlying assumption that colorism isn't a thing anymore. So we can just joke about it. 
And I know personally that the devaluation that occurs from colorism still occurs. It's, it hasn't gone away. That's right. That's right. It's not as blatant, I don't think, as it used to be, but, but it still exists. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about what prompted you to write this article and how you think colorism shows up now. Yeah, so I um, explore that question um, every so often in my research because I find it interesting that if I give a talk or if I do write about it, I oftentimes hear from someone raising the question of, wait, aren't we done with that topic? Like that was, that happened in the 60s and 70s. We're not doing that anymore. Of course, we were doing, we've been doing this for centuries. And so even well before the 60s and 70s. But I do remember one of the examples that stands out to me uh, most poignantly is speaking at one of the Black Expos in Chicago. And we were having this conversation about you know, our hair texture in particular. But of course, colorism is very much a part of that conversation as well. And this older gentleman stood up to ask a question and he said, your research is passe and done with because we've already dealt with this issue. (laughs) (laughs) That was pretty bold. (laughs) And I thought, tell that to the young sisters who are still telling me their stories and we can consider it even. But right now, there's no way that we can have a conversation that colorism is not being explored when so many people are still directly and negatively impacted by that as an experience. And what I would say is, you know, Brown Skin Girl, I mean, even as a positive song like Brown Skin Girl, I was stunned by the ver- the varied reactions that people were given to um, the song on IG as well as Twitter, where it mm-hmm. then became about the debate about who can actually call themselves a brown skin girl. And so if someone who didn't seem to fall within the range of what someone else would consider a brown skin girl, then there were attacks towards that person, you know, mm-hmm. to say, no, you already benefit from the privilege of being light skin. How dare you call yourself? yourself a brown skinned girl and certainly even for those darker complected sisters being told that they too could not be a part of brown skinned girl and what's interesting to me about it is when I hear that talk um you know, as the mother of two black children, I remember conversations with them about skin hue very early on because my husband and I are of skin hues. And even to young children, of course, it's noticeable. And then for us to end up having two children whose skin hue is closer to mine and then the other whose skin hue is closer to his, those types of conversations would come up. And so the way that I approached it with my own children was to... um find the term brown and use it as a way of ensuring that my children understood that we all fall fell under the same umbrella mm. and that brown was just a generic title that explained the gradations of brown that could occur and that we all happen to be a part of. And so there was no need to, which I absolutely do not like when people do, to start to refer to themselves by some food to describe what their hue is. You know, you're hazelnut or you're caramel. I mean, why do we need to make ourselves appealing and appetizing by talking about food when we are more than enough already just because of the way that we've been created? And so for me, brown became just that generic term that um, explained who all of us were and that I, in fact, I would often tell my children that that was why brown was my favorite color because there were so many different variations of brown and I loved wearing it and I loved being it and that they should too. Um, And so I think for myself, that term, when the song came out, I immediately went back to that moment of talking to my children about us all being brown. 
But yet and still, we can see that colorism exists because as that conversation ensued in social media, it was very clear that we were still beholden and unwilling to break away from what the term meant and wanted to hold on to the notions of who could be light skin, who could be brown skin, and then who were our dark complected sisters and brothers. Um, and I find it problematic that we still continue to have these such conversations even to this day, which show up again in our um, music, shows up in any other forms of entertainment like television in terms of who are the women in particular that are uh, highlighted as beautiful. I heard this uh, commercial for Tyrese's program on BET Uncut, I think it was, just recently where he he's reliving and rehashing the fact of growing up feeling like he was worthless and and had nothing to contribute because of how people talked about his skin hue. And so we're talking about young folks, right? Yeah. So we're not talking about someone that's 80 that's reflecting back on, you know, the early 20th century to say this is how we dealt with skin a skin hue. We are still having these conversations now and still directly impacted by them. Absolutely. That was profound what you just said. And what I like about the whole conversation that happened on Twitter, because I was following that as well, is that Beyonce didn't say a word, mm -hmm. but she answered it in her video mm -hmm. where she had women of all hues That's right. in her brown skin girl video. That's so right. that was the answer. Um, now, if we would just embrace the answer. <laughs> exactly. That's the next step. <laughs> um, you, you talked a little bit about media. And I know one of your recent works is exploring the black body and Disney programming and the impact of colorism on black teens. Now, I have two black teens, so mm -hmm. this is personal for me, too. Mm -hmm. And we all know that Disney is a superpower when it comes to media and you cannot not be influenced by That's Disney. Right. That's right. And if we just think about how much they're charging, they're charging $30 to see Mulan once just to stream it. Um, they, they have the power to do that. So I'd love to hear about your work on this area and what are some of the conclusions you found. So if my daughter were in the room, she would want this interview to stop because she absolutely hates that um, part of my body of research critiques Disney. And it's interesting that I only started critiquing Disney when my children started watching television. I tried to do a good job of keeping them away from television for a few, for the first few years of their lives. I think they probably started around four. Um, mm -hmm. And otherwise, we would watch, um, of course, PBS. This is a secret, but I used to always show uh, Broadway musicals on on film to my children. Oh, <laughs> so, I love that. So, so my children knew um, quite a few Broadway musicals uh, very early on, and would uh, I think last summer I took them to see West Side Story, and you could tell that they knew quite a few of the songs in the production because they grew up listening and watching uh, West Side Story as an example um, yeah. quite a bit as children, and that was my way of trying to keep them away from Disney, to be honest. Mm -hmm. um, once it was clear, because you are right, Disney is pervasive. I mean, it is quintessential, the quintessential idea of what an American childhood um, represents. And um, so it's very hard to keep your children away from Disney. And I think people can, but for me, what I realize is this could end up being a research area for me. Mm -hmm. And so I watched Disney with my children, partly because if there was something problematic that I felt like needed to be addressed, I could do it in real time. But then also it became something where I thought there needs to be more being done about this American institution and its influence on our children and what they take away, especially black children, what they take away from it about themselves. Um, and so most recently, I, I worked on um, a few articles that were just specific to um, Princess Tiana and The Princess and the Frog. And so The Princess and the Frog was the only Disney film that I um, took my children to see. Others that they have seen, they've seen with friends 
or they've seen now as teenagers uh, when they decide to sneak to the Disney Channel mm-hmm. and take a look at them, them themselves. But that was the only one that I was very deliberate in sharing with them, partly because I was doing research on it, but also because it had a brown girl in it that I wanted them to see on the big screen. And I remember clearly my daughter at three years old seeing uh, the trailers advertised on TV for Princess Tiana and watching her stand in front of the TV in awe um, mm-hmm. of that particular character. And I thought, there's something here and I need to explore it. So one of the things that I've done with The Princess and the Frog in particular is to be fairly critical about how Disney decided to approach its first attempt to give us a black princess in its um, repertoire because I feel like um, they didn't know exactly what to do or how to handle it without risking losing their mainstream audience. And mm-hmm. so I feel like it's a flub. But, but I say that recognizing that if I go to my daughter's room right now, there's a lot of Princess um, Tiana paraphernalia around her room, including on her on her um, bed and, you know, one mm-hmm. of her dolls. And, you know, there's an array of items that still represent for her an important part of her childhood. So that is the positive side about what that particular film did. Yeah. But there's also tremendous... Um, missteps that I think Disney made in terms of not uh, allowing her to be her full self for the full 98 minute film and instead only allowed us to see her in human form for 14 minutes as an example. Then the rest of the time she hopped around as a frog through through the film. And that to me was an effort on Disney's part of erasing blackness so that they didn't have to deal with race in that moment. Um, and in fact, one of the other pieces that comes out of my research on that film is that um, her best friend Charlotte receives more human form time on screen for us to view than we actually get to see who is supposed to be the main character of the film. Wow. Those are very telling moments, even yeah. though it, it, it warms my daughter's heart. I mean, she's 14 now and she will still watch that movie as though it was something that just came out last week. It is still very clear to me that there were messages that took away the essence and the beauty and the excitement of what it means to be a black girl in America away from them in that space and time only to promote them as a princess at the very end of the film, which is probably about two and a half to three minutes of the film that we get to see her adorned Mm -hmm. as a princess. Um, And so I've been very critical about Disney around those types of issues because I don't think um, a institution, an institution that is tasked with and has successfully um, been our primary way of conveying American uh, childhood in this country does a, a a huge disservice to black and brown children when they don't show them in their full essence. I apologize for going off for so long on that, but that one is personal, similar to you in terms of your teenage boys. It's very personal to me in terms of how we have chosen to craft the representation of our children in this country because it impacts them psychologically to the point of how they see themselves as young adults. So I'm very critical about Disney as a result of that. No, you could take as much time as you need because that was... (laughs) That was necessary to be said because I think that most of us watch the movie mm-hmm. and we see that she's a princess and we buy the stuff and we might have a, a feeling inside that it's not quite <laughs> what it should be, but we, we can't express it the way you express it. And now you just kind of put all the pieces together for us to say, yeah. oh yeah, that's why I felt that way about Well, And it's interesting because one of the other pieces I did on that film was I'm um, talking to mothers who we um, showed the film with their daughters so that they could watch it together. And then we separated the moms from the daughters so that they could do different um, focus groups with one um, with the children versus the moms. And there were a number of moms who, similar to what you're saying, said, you know, I want to feel good about this because I think this is a major accomplishment. And you also have to realize that that film came out in December 2009. 
And there had been a very recent major historical event that had happened in this country, in this country right. that same year. And so to see, you know, the first black president in office, mm -hmm. but then to see later in that same year, the first black princess on, on the big screen with Disney was a major moment in time that people wanted to embrace and celebrate. But even after wanting to celebrate, there were a number of moms who were still quite critical of the film. You know, the fact that, you know, that she had to have a, a white best friend who lived quite differently than she, right? To, to mm -hmm. exacerbate the um, class issues that existed in early 20th century New Orleans. Um, the fact that her mate ended up being someone who was not the same race as she, as Tiana was. Another, a number of moms, you know, said, I'm trying to model for my children and my daughter why their dad is, you know, a prince himself, but mm -hmm. yet even on the big screen, we, we aren't granted that to see black love flourish and exist in this moment. And that's not a criticism about interracial marriages and relationships. That's just a moment where moms were saying, here was an opportunity for Disney, again, to present and give this one young woman her full essence. And that still was taken from her because she had, she could only possibly fall in love with someone that was not the same race as she. So I think there were a number of moms who, who would agree with you that there were things that they wanted to be excited and happy about, but what they found themselves grappling with was why could they not be seen in their fullness in a way that gave their daughter something to be really proud of. Yeah, multiple levels to it and definitely a lot that Disney can do, they have a huge responsibility because they are pervasive in our, in our society. So hopefully maybe you are telling them some of these things so they can improve. Absolutely. I mean, that's, I, I would say if you, um, any of the research that you read of mine, you will, because of course I often get, you know, you criticize them for criticism's sake. And I was like, no, not quite, because I finish all of my research pieces talking about things that we can do and do differently to make things better. So this isn't just about, I'm poking fun at Disney. I remember giving a talk to a group of eighth graders um, uh, a year ago, and I had been invited to speak at this school for, you know, career fair. Um, and let's hear from the different types of careers that people can, can hold. And I stood in front of this class and talked about my research and gave them, because I thought, of course, it would be exciting since it was Disney related. And I, um, I finished talking and, and asked if there were any questions. And one young man, he says to me, raises his hand and he was like, what did Disney ever do to you? <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Personally, when you criticize Disney. But oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And I told him, I said, they didn't do anything to me, but they've done things to my children and the ones that look like you. And that's why I do what I do. It's because I feel like in this type of research, it needs to have some impact so that it can make things better. And if it means that that's my little um, contribution to making, you know, black childhood and life look um, more exciting, um, an opportunity for them to be f fulfilled or oftentimes what I call black kid freedom, then that's what I'm going to do. That's what I'm going to do. So, um, but it was quite cute to hear him <laughs> challenge me on that. <laughs> uh, well, well, thank you for doing what you do. Uh, we definitely appreciate it. One thank of you. the other things that I learned is that you are a communications media studies scholar mm -hmm. who had, who was housed in an American studies department and affiliated with Africana studies. That's right. 
That's right. Oh, okay, I got that right. That's yes, good. yes. I'm, I'm very interdisciplinary in in the work that I do, and so I was able to occupy, um, and continue to be able to occupy a number of spaces because you know what what about the African American experience is not American, so mm-hmm. it should show up in that space, right? And the Absolutely. same thing with Africana studies, it should show up squarely in the experience of what it means to be of African descent. So it shows. I my ability to um, maneuver through many of those disciplines has a lot to do with the topics that I raise and the media studies background allows me to do the media criticism work that I do associated with Disney, but also associated with black hair and body politics. And when we talk about black hair, um, Mm -hmm. I know an organization that I'm a part of, we were very active and trying to get the crown act passed. Oh, Yeah. Which makes it illegal to discriminate against people on the basis of wearing their hair in natural styles, which it should never have been an issue in the first place. But here we are. So as I think about, you know, black hair and colorism and how they interact, I was just wondering what your thoughts are about those two. Do you think that they're part, you know, two sides of the same coin? Mm -hmm. Or do you think that they're sort of on separate tracks because when I think about it sometimes if you were a darker skinned person but you had loose curly hair you might fit into a different category than if you were a darker skinned person with quote-unquote nappy hair so mm-hmm. on your scholarly opinion I was just wondering what your thoughts were um, so they are um, intricately woven with each other and can't be separated, um, even though to your point that it can be someone who is um, dark skinned but loose curly hair. So, yes, we look at um, we look at that male or female differently, but we still the reason we're looking at them differently is because we still group these two things together that they can't be separated. So we don't just look at someone who is light skinned or dark skin and make our assessments on them based just on their skin hue. What we do is we take that complete package and we look at someone and says, yes, they're light skin, but such as myself, I wear natural hair. So that that's a but to a number of people, right? Because it shouldn't be that that's not how a lot of us look at these issues that of course someone who might be light complected should have long straight hair or should have wavy hair and the fact that we would do something that seems to counter or create dissonance for us around those issues means that we then decide to take the entire package instead of just focusing on someone's skin hue or just focusing on someone's hair texture those two are intricately woven um, together and cannot be separated because we have a hard time in terms of understanding ourselves, being able to separate ourselves from what all of that means. So even though going back to our original um, conversation about we're still talking about colorism, yes, we are because we haven't dealt with it yet. Mm-hmm. We haven't done the work to be rid of why it even still matters, right? And so some of my more recent work, which I actually got into um, because of my daughter, is we decided to, um, I decided to do a auto um, ethnographic piece that the two of us would have a conversation about skin hue. Mm-hmm. And the way that the article, which is actually, uh, was just released this month, the way the article comes about is I end up sharing four different moments or interactions that I had since she was a small child where Individuals, whether they're family members or colleagues or friends, whoever, or, or strangers even, because one of the examples I use is, is from a stranger where her skin hue is highlighted because it looks so different than mine. Mm-hmm. And I tell those stories. So what I decided to do is I told her each of the stories and then recorded her response to it. Then I also had her read after I had written the entire story or the um, narrative that happened. I allowed her to write a response to it. And I use 
those um, two pieces to create a conversation for us about how we are dealing with and exploring issues around skin hue, especially when it happens within a family. Because we oftentimes have the conversations about colorism, but it's always over there, right? That's what right. someone else said about the sister in the nightclub on the other side of the room, and we can point to it and see it as external to ourselves. But what about when we reel that in and make it something that's happening right in your family, right? Mm-hmm. And with the beauty of, again, being brown, There are all shades of it that show up in our families. And so, of course, it's quite common and quite possible for you to be within the same family and have different um, shades of brown that show up. And so what happens in those moments? How do we and what messages are we sending to our children and are we sending or receiving about ourselves when we have these conversations or we don't have the conversations, but we just find ourselves articulating and uh, regurgitating messages that we've heard from previous generations about skin hue, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, no, no, no. You can't stay out in the sun too long, baby. Come on in. Come on in. Right. Or, you know, oh, my goodness, those are some pale feet. You really need to be out in the sun for a little longer. You know, all of those types of comments or one of the examples that I give in the um, article that we did together is describing uh, when someone refers to her as a chocolate drop. Because, of course, that's to be it's appetizing. Right. So, of course, Mm -hmm. you should be flattered by that term. But why is that necessary instead of just calling her by her name or giving her another nickname? Why must it be associated with skin hue? Mm -hmm. We are always working through those issues. And unless we call it, we don't recognize that we are doing it. And by not calling it out and dealing with it, it simply perpetuates itself generation after generation after generation. The title of that article, and that was all my daughter's doing, which is a direct quote from something that um, she said when she responded to one of the stories. She said, sometimes it just feels like light-skinned people always win. Mm. That was from a 13-year-old. Wow. So. When you're getting that type of message from a teenager, then it's letting you know that we as the adults are not doing the work that we need to do to address these issues for our children. And that's how I got into my most recent um, um, projects where I'm talking to um, teenagers, middle schoolers and high schoolers in separate groups of, of um, girls and boys to hear how they think and are talking about colorism in in their peer groups now. Yeah, that sounds like a great article to use with kids to kind of bring this up. And and even for adults, as you were talking about, where do we go from here? It just keeps perpetuating generation after generation because we don't address it. But it's a great place to kind of start to address it and have these conversations and just bring it to somebody's attention. Yeah, there's no need to call me chocolate drop or, you know, caramel. Just, you know, find another endearing term for me. Well, Stephanie's a nice name. (laughs) It is. It's quite nice. My my mother thought so. (laughs) So sometimes something as simple as that works. Um, I mean, I get it. And I know, you know, that's a part of the endearing parts of our communities where, you know, nicknames do mean something and and we do it as terms of endearment. But if they're associated with um, color names is what one of um, my friends, um, Jeffrey Ann Wilder, who is also a sociologist and writes in this area. Um, she refers to them as color names. And when we ascribe color names, what we're doing is also ascribing what else comes with that? You know, like what are the what are the other adjectives that you think of when you call someone a, t- a chocolate drop? What are the other adjectives that you use when you say, "Oh, you're so caramel"? I mean, all of that is so um, ingrained in how we think about color that we don't recognize that we're doing it, and so we have to call our friends, our family, our colleagues, anyone, even the strangers um, on that type of behavior so that they understand how problematic it is and what it does to to create that next generation who now is doing the same thing, even though we say that colorism should be done and over with. 
Yeah, and and it definitely perpetuates. I can't. I can count on two multiple hands how many times I was told, "Oh, you're really cute for a dark skinned oh, girl." Yes, and it and yeah. it it never felt good. It yeah. always was painful to hear. But yeah. for some reason, the people saying it thought it was a compliment. One of the other things that I like to do on SOAR, or one of my goals, is to heal some of the scars of sisterhood. Mm-hmm. And from my experience and the experience of some of my friends, colorism has caused some of those scars amongst our sisters. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on how we as women can begin to heal those scars? I would say first and foremost is that the whole notion of sisterhood is important which is why I think that the work that you do with SOAR is also important. And I think I've conveyed that to you already that, you know, sisterhood is not always easy. Mm -hmm. And uh, many of us have not learned how to do sisterhood well, because Mm -hmm. instead we've seen each other as adversaries and, and our competition and not recognizing that there's so much at the table and so much room at the table for all of us that we need not do that to one another. And so part of what has to happen is for us to embrace the notion of sisterhood and recognize that we are in this journey together and not necessarily competing against each other. That's one of the first things. The second thing, if we can reach the point of embracing sisterhood in the way that is supportive of one another, is that we can then have conversations, real conversations about what it means to be these different skin hues and what our experiences are, share what our hurts and frustrations have been, also recognizing the privileges that some also have as a result of their skin hue and -hmm. being able to dispel some of the myths and stereotypes that exist um, around those skin, um, skin hues so that we can just appreciate each other for who we are instead of being focused and fixated on um, uh, fixated on, you know, the, the, um, stereotypes that are associated with those skin hues. So if you think about it, you know, even I, I pledged my sorority in the early nineties. And even then in the early nineties, we were still having the conversations about, you know, the AKs are the light skin folks mm-hmm. and the, uh, deltas are the dark skin folks. And you're like, what? Like, where did this come from? And you yep. know that it has a history, right? Like it's coming mm-hmm. out of history and that we've kind of held on to it. So instead of challenging it, and saying that is absolutely ridiculous. It has nothing to do with skin hue. This is supposed to be two public service organizations that are giving to their communities and skin hue has nothing to do with it. We find ourselves falling suit and, and embracing those notions. And so that's a part of what has to happen among sisters. And I'm saying, I know I'm speaking specifically about women right now, but it, it needs to happen among men as well. Yeah. But so much of what we have done um, among ourselves as women is to really see ourselves in this competitive mode that hasn't allowed us to just embrace and appreciate and love each other for who we are instead of all of these adjectives that we happen to represent as a a result of a a stereotype that's been placed upon one another. Um, So for me, that's that. those are the directions that we have to go. We have to have those difficult conversations. And it's interesting because it was my daughter in doing that, that particular article together who also said to me, Mommy, you teach a class on black hair and body politics to college students. That conversation needs to happen with these middle schoolers that I go to, mm-hmm. these middle schoolers that I go to, you know, where she's telling me that she's been called, you know, dark chocolate nasty or mm-hmm. that when, you know, the, the lights go off in the room to watch a movie, people are like, what happened to you? Where are you? Um, or the comments where, and this is one that I tell in the article where one of her classmates who ha- happened to be um, uh, lighter complected uh, as she entered the classroom one day. And this was supposed to be a friend of hers. He said to her, he was like, why are you in here? You know, your type are supposed to be out in the field. Oh, my goodness. So these are middle schoolers talking to each other in that way. Yeah. So we look at and what we miss is that if we don't have these types of conversations with our children while they are children, they really do grow up 
from the scars that you talk about of the messages that they receive from friends, parents, or colleagues,、mm-hmm. or strangers that then make you question what it means to be this particular skin hue as an adult. And what I would say is that's our goal as adults is to have these types of conversations so that we can heal our young sisters、yeah. well before they become adult women still struggling and dealing with these issues. Yes, that is great advice. Those are definitely directions that we want to go into, and it's so sad to hear. That middle schoolers are saying those things to each other. I, th- this answer may be the same, but it might be a little bit different. So I asked the question based on people who feel that they have been hurt by another sister. The other side of the question that I want to ask is about how we perceive each other.、Mm-hmm. Sometimes you see somebody, and the and it's such an unconscious、mm-hmm. loop that happens <laughs> that you. Automatically make that judgment. Oh,、mm-hmm. that's a light-skinned sister over there. Oh, that's a, and and you're not even aware of it. But once you make that judgment, it's already perpetuating a stereotype and the things that have been ingrained.、Mm-hmm. So, what are your thoughts about how we can start to look at brown as being neutral and just sort of take the charge away from all of the different hues? A lot of it comes through our language. Because I, I think you're right that、um, it's an unconscious process in terms of the messages that we have received and been taught or given、um, in our own childhood, right? You know,、um, I tell my students all the time when they talk about, you know.、Um, Uh, how resilient children are, and you say, "Are we really resilient, or are we as adults just giving ourselves an out and waiting until they become adults, and then as adults we see how scarred they are, and we're looking for、yeah. them to figure it out, right? Go to therapy, or、yeah. you know,、mm-hmm. clean yourself up, or you know, we, we're supposed to fix it as an adult, but we don't think about fixing it and addressing as children. When、yeah. again, the adults have that responsibility to do." And need to own that, especially if you have access、um, to children. That that is such an important role of what you're supposed to do to to take care of them, so that they can have minimally. Fewer scars and trauma from their childhood, so that they don't find themselves、um, at a disadvantage moving into adulthood. Because if you think about it, that's what a lot of us have experienced. It's been so much trauma from our childhood that it then holds us back to be able to move forward and excel in the way that we know we have the capability in which to do so. Because we've already been given all of this, right? We've been given all of the opportunity and energy and knowledge and wisdom within us. Like we got here with it to be able、mm-hmm. to do, but somehow along the way, some kids make comments to us, some adults make comments to us, some adults don't address it and clean it up or help us with it. So we then become adults who have limitations of how to see ourselves as in our full essence and our ability to do well in life without, regardless of what those limitations、um, that were placed upon us are. And so,、um, for me, I think it comes down to our language. That the moment it comes in our head, yes, absolutely, it's unconscious. But then, what do you do with it?、Mm-hmm. Do you verbalize it? Do you recognize what your thought was saying, and then try to rework it and give it something else, so that you're taking away that power of how you thought about the person, or are you feeding into it? And、mm-hmm. then, what are you doing with again the access that you have to young people? Are you repeating those same messages because that's how、mm. colorism still is、yep. here? <laughs> yep, absolutely. What did you say about colorism that now has these young people around you talking that way, right?、Um, yeah. And so a lot of it has to do with language and what we're willing to communicate or not communicate associated with that. I don't think there's a point of Reaching where brown just becomes neutral, and we don't think anything of it, and we just say, "Oh, she's brown," and move on. I think there will always be a bit of that because there always there will always be someone who's talking like that, and、mm-hmm. so it requires us 
to be the ones in control of what we can control, which is our language. And so even if the thought crosses your mind, what do you do with that language associated with it? Or do you just continue to hold on to it? I know it's, I know that's more abstract and not necessarily, you know, a clear directive. But for me, it's, it's about language because only when you change your thought is when you change your perspective about how you're interacting and thinking about somebody. I could not agree more. That's what I typically work with people on. It's just mm-hmm. the thoughts and taking them from the unconscious to that's the right. conscious. So that's right. Once you become conscious, you have a choice. That's right. And you can choose to think a different thought that brings out a different feeling in you or repurpose it to something that is more positive more and definitely positive. not allow it to come out of your mouth mm-hmm. in language that is going to affect the next generation or affect your sister or affect someone else. Yeah. And the, and the other thing you said, I, I, I was just saying this last week is that Sometimes it feels like adulthood is all about unlearning half the stuff that you taught in childhood. Like half of it, you have to unlearn and unpack. And if we're a little bit more deliberate and conscientious with what we teach our children and how we speak to them and, and how we manage all of the things, then they'll have a little less to unlearn. Maybe yes, just a third. Yes, yes. No, I, I would agree with you. Um, even even some of the messages that we think are positive end up being messages that we might have to um, unlearn and relearn as adults because some of our positive messages are positive for our families, right? Or mm-hmm. our particular um, subset. But then when you place it upon someone else, then it turns into something that can be seen as negative. And so it's so important for us to, you know, understand how we are engaging and what that impact of some of those judgments can be on other people. Um, it's a bit off from uh, the discussion of colorism, but I remember um, my husband and I have very different um, upbringings. And when we first moved to Baltimore, you know, my mom was a school teacher. So, of course, once my children went into school, I was fully engaged and present in the way mm-hmm. that I felt like I needed to be for my children and certainly for other children children who had an opportunity to see me and interact with, you know, um, somebody else's mom. But I remember saying to my husband, because I became uh, PTA president of their elementary, of my children's elementary school, and I came home one day frustrated and said, I just don't understand why these parents won't come into the school and be engaged with what's happening inside. And my Mm -hmm. husband said, and what you don't understand is your own class privilege of understanding Mm -hmm. that you had parents who had the ability to do that. So they taught you to do that. And so now you go into the building with that same mindset. But what about those families who have a different understanding of how they had to navigate the world? What about the single mom who has to be at her job during the, during the school day or otherwise she's not bringing home an income? How is it possible for her to have the same advantage and way of looking at education that you do? And it was very revealing to me about, again, something that I thought was positive, right? I thought it was a good right. thing that I was in that building and helping and being supportive of the teacher and my children. But at the same time, what I had done is put in place a judgment on other families that didn't look like mine and didn't have the same opportunities um, and privileges as mine and made judgment that something was wrong with theirs. Mm-hmm. And so I, I share that story to make sure we understand that it's about language. Like if we, if I had just been able to think through what that meant and not articulate that judgment out of my mouth mm-hmm. about other parents or other caregivers in general, that would have given given me the opportunity to have a more expansive way of looking at how people are doing this journey called parenting or caregiving. And instead, what I had done is allowed that thought to stick with me to the point where I articulated it. And so my language then gave it power of believing that I was better than somebody else because of my own experience. Yeah, I always remember how the Bible says that the power of life and death is in the tongue mm-hmm. and to just be very careful with how you use your words That's because right. they're very powerful. That's right. And we, and we all do it. We see things from our own lens, of That's our right. own experiences and perspective. 
And of course we would. That's the lens that we've lived in. But as adults and as women who want to further sisterhood and who want to overcome colorism, I think the next step is to kind of be conscientious about those thoughts and about what comes out of your mouth in the that's language. Right. Yeah. So Cause that's when so you that's, give it that's power. Right. That's the moment mm-hmm. you give it power is that you decided you decide to articulate it. And then once you've given it power, it's hard to find a way of um, redressing or correcting or even recognizing that you may have brought harm to someone else as a result of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as we wrap up our mm-hmm. discussion on colorism, I did want to ask you a question that, that doesn't have to do with colorism. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, because I was so interested in what you were, what you're writing about Michelle Obama and the mm-hmm. Flawless Effect. Mm-hmm. Um, I think right now as black women, we're all so proud of her and we're enjoying her new podcast. I think I just listened to an episode this morning mm-hmm. and we just can't get enough of her. Can you share with us some of what you explore in your writings on Michelle Obama and what the FLOTUS effect is? A wide range of issues. What we wanted to do in that book was to acknowledge that the first African-American first lady of America um, had this deep effect on a number of people that many of us weren't even able to describe, right? Because some of it was about her physical presence, but some of it also was about historically what she represented, the journey that African-Americans had overcome to get to a point of being alive and seeing this black family in the White House and what that um, conveyed to so many. And I think Michelle Obama... um, uh, reminds so many of us of people that we know mm-hmm. that we can look around and even if we aren't like Michelle Obama, we know someone who is and to be able to see her on a national and even international platform was one way in which I think a number of black women said, Oh, we are finally being seen. And I think that is a part of her effect is that she has given, um, breath and life to our full essence, recognizing that we aren't necessarily just the women who people, you know, see working in stores or um, loving to watch us play in films like The Help or, you know, used to seeing us in roles where we're playing bad moms. But in fact, she was giving us that sense of we can be seen and seen in a way that counters many of the representations and characterizations that um, appear of black women on on screen. Um, and she's in the real flesh. She's not a representation. She's not a caricature. She's not a characterization, but she is the real flesh. She's the real thing. And so I think that whole notion of being seen was so important to a number of black women and beyond because there are a number of women who are fans of Michelle Obama across the board, which again is also a part of that effect that you have finally. I mean, think about it historically of what first lady have you seen have that level of notoriety that people were paying attention to her as much as they were to the president. Usually we don't do that um, in that particular ceremonial role because they happen to just be the spouse of the president of the United States. And that's the role that they um, occupy. And there's not really anything dynamic about that other than the fact we want them to be graceful and represent right. the country well on the national international platform. Michelle Obama came in and said, yeah, but I'm much more than that. Mm-hmm. And this is who I am. And she demonstrated who she was through what she did, whether it was, you know, through her gardens at the um, White House or whether it was her work with um, uh, veterans families or appearing mm-hmm. on television, on te- on on um, kids television programs, whether, you know, it's Nickelodeon all the way to being on late night talk shows that she made herself someone that we understood was a full person person that had their own thoughts and ideas and she was very comfortable to give that to us 
Um, we also have heard, of course, her talk about the weight of some of that, right? That, yeah. that she felt like she carried in particular during the White House years. And I can see, easily see why she felt like there was a big burden that she was carrying at the same time of having this celebratory moment, um, which makes perfect sense. But what she did for us is to show us that she could be who she wanted to be. And even though that weight of what other people expected of her was still being um, placed on her shoulders, that she gave us who she was and said it's okay to be that way. And that's a, a significant message that I think so many people um, can take away, not just black women, but any woman can take away from the message that Michelle Obama gave. I remember watching that um, her film, The Coming, with my daughter, and seeing my daughter move by um, some of the comments that she was raising because she was giving her consistent message has always been that you're more than enough, mm. you know, that you're okay as who you are and that there isn't anything else that you have to do. And that's a message that whether it's children all the way until adults can really benefit from hearing such a message. Um, so the reason in, in talking about her was to talk about that impact, that effect that she had um, on this nation and abroad as a result of her deciding that she was going to be who she was. Yeah, very powerful. I, I think she's either the first or second most popular woman in the world. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. her message resonates with just about everyone and yeah. her authenticity does too. That's right. That's right. It, it matters to people to see someone that um, is seen somewhat as accessible to them, knowing that they've got, you know, similar challenges, that they've had, you know, similar experiences, um, that they might not all be reflective of what your own journey is, but she can still find something that's relatable to you and, and at the same time reminding you of how um, your sheer presence is enough. And I think that's the biggest thing, even with all of the vitriol that she had to accept or yes. um, endure while she was in office and even out of office, she has still been consistent to say, but this is who I am. And so at the end of the day, if, if, if someone just struggles with who you are, then there's nothing you can do about that. But what a glorious spot to be in that you can still be comfortable in your own skin and say, but I'm okay anyway. Absolutely. Well, this has been a wonderful conversation. I wanted to give you an opportunity to leave any other thoughts that you had. If there was something that you wanted to share that I didn't bring out in the interview, did you have any final thoughts? Oh, goodness. Um, I felt like I've talked so much, um, Stephanie, so I'm not sure if I've got anything else to um, add other than um, I'm loving the work that you're doing around sisterhood. Um, it is interesting for myself, the journey that I have experienced around sisterhood. You know, as I said earlier, this is not always an easy process for us to do, to be with each other. And um, one of the, and I've always over the years felt or found myself struggling with aspects of sisterhood. But because of my own daughter, I was determined that this was going to be something as a positive journey so that I could reflect and model for her that there's no need for us to see one another as competition or adversaries. We should see each other as partners in crime to make this happen, right? Like, let's uh -huh. do this journey and we can do it so much better. We do it together. And um, one of the most revealing experiences I had recently was actually about a month ago. I, I have a colleague who said that she wanted to um, uh, pray with me and a few friends uh, before I started my first day on the job as interim dean. And I said, sure. And she was like, let's do it at Zoom. You know, invite whoever you'd like and we will um, come together that Sunday afternoon and just, you know, pray and offer some affirmations for you. And um, that day came. And when I signed on, there were 55 women on that call. Wow. 
55 women ranging from family members like my own sister um, all the way to my minister, um, you know, uh, my line sisters that I pledge with in Delta Sigma Theta, you know, almost 30 years ago, mm -hmm. um, you know, a childhood friends, friends from my um, graduate days at Howard University. I mean, just it was unreal to see all of these faces representing different phases of my life and mm -hmm. being a a um, physical manifestation of what sisterhood means. Oh, yep. That's Absolutely. what that told me in that moment. And I had my daughter sitting next to me during that um, call because I just wanted her to see what this looks like when it shows up in your life. Because how many of us have moments like that? You know, maybe our wedding, you know, maybe right. the birth of a child. Certainly everyone shows up to your funeral. But a living moment in which you just have all of these important people in your life, including a number of my graduate students, black women graduate students who I've had over the years, who were probably the most um who played such a significant role in that moment because then they became a part of, you know, a living legacy to be able to talk about what I've done for them. And mm -hmm. I got to hear it. Right. Yes. Um, that's what sisterhood should be about. It is not perfect. It is not ever always ideal, but there are moments like that that remind you why it's so important. And that would be what I would end with. And that is the perfect ending because in my mind's eye of sort of strengthening sisterhood and creating this circle, this virtual circle, physical circle, it looks like what you just described, mm. us showing up for each other at That's right. different points and, and not just at, at the wedding and at the funeral, <laughs> but at mm -hmm. points in between. And just being able to feel that energy of our sisters and that support oh. and being able to speak into each other's lives and speak into each other's journeys. And um, I think that that is a beautiful and powerful thing. So absolutely. Absolutely. So then keep keep it up. Keep the work going. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you for listening to this episode of SOAR. If you'd like to reach me for coaching, you can reach me at www.stephaniebrowncoaching.com. And if you want to follow SOAR, you can follow Sisters Overcoming and Rising on Instagram or Stephanie Brown Coaching on Facebook. Goodbye for now.